Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 is our text for this day. And we're going to look at a story that Jesus told called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. As found in Luke 18, 9 through 14. And so I'm going to read this aloud very carefully and slowly and deliberately, and you follow along in your Bible. Luke 18, 9, and he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. What a story. The story of two very different men going up to pray in the temple. In fact, you couldn't get more different than a Pharisee and a tax collector. They were at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisee was highly respected. He was in a position of great uh, power. He was one of the religious leaders in Israel. He was very zealous for religious things. He was very pious, at least outwardly. If you call somebody today a Pharisee, are you complimenting them or not? Not at all. But at one time, they were very highly regarded. They were zealous for God's law. In fact, they were so zealous for God's law, here's what they did. They took God's law and they added a bunch of other laws to it. Because they said, if God said something to do or not to do, then we want to be sure we do it or don't do it, and we're going to take additional measures to not even get close to doing it and not doing it. But the problem with that is when you add to God's word, you're not doing a good thing. You are insinuating, in fact, if you add to God's commandments that God didn't say enough, that God was somehow faulty in his communication. And so we will help him out by adding additional rules. And they added a whole bunch of rules to God's commands. And Jesus would say to them things like, you honor me with your mouth, you draw nigh with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You made up all these 
rules, and by your rulemaking, you have made of no effect the commandments of God. For instance, God says, honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment of the ten. The Pharisees came up with a little loophole where they could wiggle out of that. They would say, Mama and Daddy, I know that God tells us to honor you, but I have dedicated my money and my time that I would use to take care of you. I've dedicated it to the temple. And so I'm unable to take care of you because I've dedicated my possessions to God. And Jesus says, by your man-made rule, you have dishonored the clear command of God to honor your father and your mother. And they came up with a little legal loophole. They called it the the law of Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N, Corban, Corban. They would say, uh, I'm sorry, I can't honor you, Dad. Mom, I can't help because... I'm serving God with my resources. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. And you find all through the gospel, Jesus and the Pharisees are butting heads because Jesus exposes them for the hypocrites they are. The people thought they were really spiritual and holy. And Jesus says they're not at all holy. They pray so people will see them pray. They give great gifts so people will see, oh, what great Charitable men these are. They would blow the trumpet and say, I'm about to give an offering. Watch this great gift that I'm placing in the collection vat. They were hypocrites. They would fast and make a big show of fasting. They would have must hair and wrinkled clothes and an awful frowning face. And they would say, oh, look, they're fasting. What holy men they are to fast. And Jesus would say, wash your face, comb your hair. So only God knows you're fasting. Fast in secret. Don't make a big show of fasting. Don't make a big show of praying and don't make a big show of giving. Do it quietly, secretly, anonymously and God will see it and God will reward you for your giving and praying and fasting. The Pharisees were, in fact, the word Pharisee means separated ones. They were separated from the other people. They went further than anybody else in their zeal to do what was right. And yet it was not a, a heart zeal, a love for God. It was a love for themselves. They wanted the attention. They wanted people to look at them and say, wow, aren't they something? And Jesus exposed the Pharisees for what they were. They added hundreds of commands to the word of God. And in fact, let me, let me read you a, a note that I have written down because I knew I could not remember all this. And so uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, there were many commands that God gave. There were the Ten Commandments, of course. And there were other commands that God gave in His Word. In fact, someone has counted there were 613 commands in the Old Testament. That's quite a few Covering many different, uh, many different aspects of life. And so God gave a lot of commands. But the Pharisees said, well, uh, we've got a few commands we'd like to give as well. And here's what they would do. They made their commandments up. And then they judged everybody if they didn't keep them. And they graded themselves for keeping them really good. They gave themselves A pluses for keeping all their man-made rules. 
they had what was called the tradition of the elders. Jesus referred to it as the tradition of the elders. It was the leaders in the synagogue in Jerusalem, the great synagogue they called it. In order to, in their mind, protect the law and put a fence around the law, uh, they would add many extra commands, extra biblical commands to the word of God. There was this huge amount of material developed over generations, rules and rituals and prohibitions and behaviors. Some of it would, uh, would be the teachings of the rabbis. Some of it would be scribbled on pieces of parchment by students who sat under the rabbi's teaching. Some of it would be decisions made by wise, respected men. Some of it would be, one man called it, the musings of idiots. And everything in between, just a massive amount of rules and counsel and decisions and rituals. And all that was gathered and collected, and that is what is known as the Mishnah. You've heard the term, haven't you? The Mishnah. There's the Torah, the law of God, and the Mishnah, the additional man-made rules that was gathered over the generations. In this collection of materials called the Mishnah, there were 30 chapters on the ritualistic exact way to wash pots and pans. 30 chapters on how to ritualistically wash your pots and pans so that when you cook out of them and eat from them, you would not be sinning. 30 chapters on that. One whole volume on rinsing your hands the right way so that you would not be ritualistically defiled. Then it was determined that the Mishnah needed some clarification and some supplementation. And so commentaries were written explaining the Mishnah. So you've got all these extra things, but now you need a whole bunch of extra books to explain the extra stuff. And that was referred to as the Gemara, the Gemara. So they took the Mishnah and the Gemara, these two big volumes of man-made rules that had nothing to do with God's commands. They were legalistic additions made by hypocritical men. And that's, by the way, that's what Pharisees always do. They always add to the Bible. They add their rules to God's commands. And Jesus was always exposing them for that folly. And so the Mishnah and the Gemara together forms the Talmud. You've heard of the Talmud. There was the Torah, the Mishnah, the Gemara, and the Mishnah and Gemara forms the Talmud. So you got all these Hundreds, thousands of rules. Then there was the Babylonian Talmud. When they were carried captive to Babylon, the rabbis there came up with a Talmud while they were in Babylon. It was four times larger than the Jerusalem Talmud. Is it any wonder that Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, you bind heavy burdens upon men and lay them on men's shoulders and they're not able to bear them. Do you remember that scripture? Matthew 23, 4. Matthew 23, 4. You bind heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. The law and the additions to the law crushed the people. And Jesus would speak the pure word of God. He didn't quote Rabbi so-and-so. 
who commented at this season about this issue, Jesus would just say, it is written. And they marveled at what Jesus said because he spoke as one having authority. Just to give you uh, another example, one rabbi came up with this saying. Whoever, quote, here's the saying, quote, whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his food with washed hands may rest assured that he shall receive eternal life. So eternal life to this rabbi was you live in Israel and you wash your hands the proper way before you eat. And you are assured, he said, of eternal life. No wonder Jesus exposed these rascals. They were dooming and damning men's souls with ridiculous stuff. And Jesus comes and he says, let me tell you a story, you who are so righteous in your own eyes. And look at verse 9 again in our text. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they looked down on others. So Jesus has apparently in this gathering of people, he can look right into their eyeballs like I can. But he looks deeper than their eyeballs. He can look right into their hearts as the son of God. And he can tell, look at these pious Pharisees who think they're so much better than everybody else. They think they're righteous. They look down on everybody else. And he says, let me tell you a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. Let's talk about him a second. At the other end of the spectrum, the tax collectors were Jewish Jewish men that contracted with the Roman Empire to collect a certain amount of taxes that Rome required of that particular precinct or district, this man, this tax collector, would guarantee that this particular area would give to Rome whatever they required, and whatever he could get in addition to that, he could keep for himself. And he would use strong-armed thugs to rouse up, rough up the people, and get from them whatever he wanted. He would give Rome their Requirement, and he'd keep whatever he wanted for himself. Think of the mafia. Here was a Jew who had sold out his own people for these wicked Romans, and he was coercing by force from his own people tariffs and customs and tolls, all kind of taxes to give to the Romans, but mostly for himself. And he was always, the tax collectors were almost always very rich, and they were notoriously dishonest. So you've got the Pharisee and you've got the scum tax collector. So you can't get more opposite than that, socially speaking. The people regarded the Pharisees as holy men and they regarded the tax collectors as traitors to Israel and corrupt, greedy men. And so here they are. Something, though, has moved these men to go pray. And so here they are praying. Let's listen in on their prayer. Jesus tells us how they prayed. They start out the same. They both start with God. And that's where the similarity ends. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you. So far, so good, right? God, I thank you that I am not like other men are. And he goes from God to his favorite subject very quickly. I, 
I thank thee that I am not as other men are. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He quickly gets to his favorite subject, which was himself. And he reveals what's in his heart. He is so impressed with himself. He gives this self-eulogy, as it were. He's, he's bragging on himself, calling it prayer. Was this prayer? This is nothing like prayer. This is a false prayer. In fact, you can see in this parable, false praying versus true praying. And we'll get to true praying from the lowly tax collector. False praying and true praying. False worship and true worship. Who was this man worshiping when he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. I'm not adulterous. I'm not a cheat. I'm not unjust or unrighteous at all. And I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector way back there. He's worshiping. Is he not? Who is he worshiping? He's worshiping his God. He's worshiping himself. He is really impressed with himself. There is a common problem that the descendants of Adam and Eve have. Let me tell you what it is. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell and turned away from God, there has been a sin that keeps coming up again and again and again. It is this ugly sin of self-righteousness. We think we're good. We think we can fix the parts that's not good, but we're mostly good. And if we're not good, we can fix it. We can do it ourselves. We can, we can save ourselves. We can fix ourselves. We can get ourselves right before God. This is self-righteousness. It's perhaps the most damning of all sins because it's the one sin that will always keep a man and woman away from Jesus they think they're good. They don't need a Savior. They think they're well. They don't need to go see the doctor. Jesus says, they that are whole need not a physician. Those who are sick need a doctor, Jesus said. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to heal the sick and to call the sinner to repentance. These good people who look down their noses at everybody else, these self-righteous hypocrites, which is what the Pharisees were. They pray. They go to the temple. They even start out with God. I thank you. But very quickly they reveal what's in their heart. A love of self. An impression. An impressiveness with their self. They're so impressed with themselves. They're so good. In fact, this was their motto. I'm so glad that I'm so good. I'm so glad that I'm so good. That's Christianity, right? True or false? Very false, yes. That's the opposite of Christianity. Christianity is, though I'm a sinner and ruined, Jesus, the dear Son of God, came to save the ruined sinners of which I am chief. And he is my boast, and he is my trust, and he is my confidence. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I'm so glad that I'm so good. That was his theme. I'm so happy about me. Aren't you? 
Aren't you happy about me? I'm so happy about me. Oh, how pure he is. Look how pure he is. He is not like other men. He's not extortioners. He hasn't cheated anyone. He is not unrighteous at all. He is not an adulterer. And he is not like that tax collector. This is false prayer. This is false worship. This is false righteousness. This is false piety. This is a false salvation. He is not a saved man, and he's praying like an unsaved man, isn't he? This is not how a saved man or woman prays. They don't boast about themselves. They boast in Christ. They glory in the grace of God. I don't deserve it, but he loves me. I don't deserve it, but he forgave me. I'm anything but worthy of his grace, which is why I get grace. Grace is for the unworthy. Grace is for the undeserving. By definition, it's for the undeserving. If I deserve it, it's not grace. It's, it's wage. I get what I'm due. If I deserve it, God will give me what I deserve. But by definition, he gives me grace, which I don't deserve. So here's two, here are two men at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The first one prays a mighty... Impressive prayer to himself. He's impressed. He says, I, I don't do all these things, and I'm not like these people. How ugly self-righteousness is. How ugly self-righteousness is. Beloved, I pray that we as a church will never give off the stench of this self-righteousness, that somehow we can... We can communicate, we can have the testimony in the community, on our jobs, in our families that, no, we hadn't got it all together. It's not that we're all together people and we've figured it all out and we're, no, we're wretched, ruined, miserable, lost, condemned, hell-bound sinners apart from the dear Son of God who intervened on our behalf. We have trusted in Christ and therefore He has secured our eternal well-being. We're no better than any other man. Or woman. And we must always remember that. Do you ever think like the Pharisee? Now, I heard the story about the Sunday school teacher who taught her children this lesson on the Pharisee and the tax collector. And she said, Now, boys and girls, let's bow our heads now and let's thank the Lord that we're not like the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like the Pharisee. What time out? She missed the point too, didn't she? And we missed the point too if we say, God, I thank you that I'm not like the Pharisee. Because the fact of the matter is, we're often like the Pharisee. We're better than them. We wouldn't do that. We would never think or do or act like that. Well, your sin stinks other ways. Their sin stinks to you, but in the eyes of a holy God, all of our sin stinks. All of us are ruined apart from Jesus. There's only one that has merit, and it is Christ, and he gives to us his merit when we trust in him. Self-righteousness is an ugly thing. The Pharisees added to the scriptures. They made up all these rules. 
They checked the boxes. We kept this. They always give themselves an A plus, and they always gave everybody that wasn't like them an F. And it was nothing to do with God or his commandments. It had nothing, in fact, to do with a true heart of love for God. In, in, in the Old Testament, they would bring their sacrifices that God required, but they would bring their crippled lambs. This little lamb was going to die anyway. It's kind of got a floppy ear and it's hobbling on one leg and blind in one eye. Let's offer that to the Lord. It's going to die anyway. And Malachi, one of the prophets, would say, you wicked hypocrites. Offer that to your governor and see if he's pleased with it. What makes you think you can offer that to the living God? Bring your best sacrifice for he is a great king. Find a lamb without spot or blemish which would point forward to the Lamb of God who was to come, who would be without spot or without blemish. They would go through the motions of sacrifice. They would bring lambs, but it would be crippled and lame and blind lambs. Or they would just do it out of habit with no heart involved. Joel, the prophet, would say things like, tear your heart and not just your garments. They would go to the temple and they would tear their robe. And they were saying, look how penitent we are. Look how greed we are about our sin. And even that expression of contrition over sin became a hypocrisy. And Joel would say, stop tearing your clothes and tear your heart open before God. And why are you bringing these sacrifices? Stop. I own the whole world. I don't need your lambs. In other words, they were going through the sacrifices, the ritual system, just without any thought, just carelessly and without any true confession of sin and true repentance in their heart. And then you take that fact and you add to it all the other things that they added to God's law. And they were a really a wicked thing to be a Pharisee. The story is told that one day Frederick the Great, king of Prussia, went and visited a prison and he talked with each one of the inmates and he heard endless tales of their innocence. I was framed. I didn't get a fair trial. They misunderstood the details. I have been exploited by wicked men. Excuse after excuse. Finally, he gets to a cell of a convict who doesn't say anything. And the king says, well, I suppose you're innocent too. And the man said, no, sir, I'm not innocent. I'm guilty. And I deserve my punishment. And the king turns to the warden and he says, quickly, warden, Get this rascal out of this prison before he corrupts all the good innocent people in here. And beloved, the only way we find freedom from the prison is if we own our guilt. When we say, no, I'm not the Pharisee who's got it all together. I'm I'm the tax collector and worse. And he's worse too. He just don't know it. The Pharisee don't. In fact, he's really worse than the tax collector. For in addition to all the tax collector's sins, this man has added the sin of self-righteousness. 
Now, he says, I'm, I don't do these things. And let me tell you the things I do do. God, I, I, I fast twice a week. You know how many times the Old Testament commanded a fast? One day a year. The only commanded fast in the Old Testament was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They were required that day to afflict themselves, and, which meant fasting. That was the only required fast of the Old Testament. You know how many fasts are required under the New Covenant? Zero. But fasting is commended in places in the New Testament. And Jesus said, when the bridegroom is taken away, the children will fast then. There will be days of hardship coming, and we will need to fast and pray. But how many commanded fasts are there? One in the Old Testament, zero in the New. Well, what about the Pharisees? They fasted twice a week. Did God tell them to? No, didn't. And when you do a little digging... You find out they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. Why? Monday and Thursday. Well, those were the days that people went to the market. Those were the market days. So you could go to the market where people are all around, throw a few ashes on your head, and really put on a good theater. We're going to fast on the market days and put on a big show in front of a lot of people because we're so holy No wonder Jesus said, when you fast, wash your face and do it in secret. Otherwise, you're just playing the hypocrite. Fasting twice a week, that's adding to the scriptures. That's religious theater. There's no reality there. There's no genuine love for God there. There's just a love for self. I give tithes of all that I possess. God did require them to tithe their field crops, but they went beyond that. They went even to the point of tithing their garden herbs and the seeds of their herbs. They always went further than the scriptures. We still see it today, beloved. There are still preachers, churches, sometimes maybe a whole denomination that will require of you to do things that even God don't require. You can be sure they're off track when they do that. They may be a cult. They may be a wolf in sheep's clothing. They may just be unlearned or or they may not be intending to deceive. But when they go beyond the scriptures, they've gone too far. They're on the route to becoming a Pharisee. God has said enough for his children. Let's dig in right there. Let's dig in and hold to what he has said. Amen. Let's not go beyond that. There's no virtue in it. Oh, well, if he said this, let's go further. No, let's not. Let's stay right here where he has said, do this and don't do that. He said enough. So this Pharisee prays. And he is so pleased with his prayer. What does he say? What does he ask of God. He's praying, so he's asking God something, right? What is he asking God for? Can you find anything in his prayer that he's, is there a petition in that prayer at all? Is he asking God for anything? Not a thing, because he doesn't need a thing, you see. Why would you ask for something when you have got it all together in yourself? You're all together good. You don't need anything from God. He doesn't ask for anything. There's no petition. 
There's no confession of sin. What sin or fault does he confess? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this public. And I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. No confession of any sin at all. Why? He didn't consider himself a sinner. No sin to confess. Not in him. In fact, he's glad that he's not a sinner. This is self-righteousness. This is damning to your soul. It is damning to your soul. The gospel is for the bad, not the good, right? The gospel is not for good people. Good people can't be saved, in fact. You've got to know you're bad before you can get saved. It's only for the unrighteous, not the righteous, because there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no petition. There's no confession. There's no humility. He stands and that was okay to stand in prayer. That was an acceptable posture in prayer. Sometimes they stood and prayed. But I wonder, as Jesus lets us in on the extreme self-righteousness of this man, we get the contrast because the tax collector stands afar off. And so apparently the, the Pharisee was standing in a very prominent place, unlike the tax collector who stood way off, just as far off as he could stand. And he would not lift up so much as his eyes. And he beats on his chest. As if to say, God, the problem's right here. I'm the problem. I'm a sinner. Somehow this cheat, this scoundrel who'd sold out his own nation for money, who had become a traitor to his own people, who had profited off their hardships, somehow he's been brought to a place where he realizes money is not everything. And though he was, like most of the tax collectors, a very rich, he now feels himself to be very, very poor. And the Holy Spirit has brought such conviction upon him that he cannot even lift up his eyes in this place of prayer smiting on his chest and saying but one thing, God, I need mercy from you. I don't deserve it, but I need mercy. I am a great sinner. Very different than the Pharisee, wasn't it? God, I thank you that I'm so good. God, I am so bad. And I only ask one thing of you, and that is mercy. There was a young man years ago that his family would open up their home to traveling preachers. And one day, one of the preachers came through and stayed a few nights with his family. And the preacher would talk to the children as they would sit around the table and sit around the fireplace. And he asked the young boy, he said, son, do you pray? And the young boy realized the preacher was talking to him. And he said, no, I don't know how to pray. He said, well, let me teach you. Start like this. Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Start praying right there. Start praying that. And that young man would testify that 
It was his first sense and first awareness that he was a sinner. And he began to pray what it meant to pray to God for mercy upon himself, a sinner. This little prayer has all the right theology in it. It has the doctrine of of substitution. We'll get to that uh, next time. It has the doctrine of imputation. It has the doctrine of atonement. It has the doctrine of sin and wrath. And it's the, it's the, this is the right prayer. This is right worship. This is true piety. This is real praying right here. If you find yourself praying to impress people, you're the Pharisee. If you find yourself doing anything in the Christian life, And then you glance to see, did someone see that? I hope somebody saw that. That's pretty good. I did pretty good right there. The spirit of the Pharisee has just come upon you. Beloved, we've got to guard against this. We've got to guard against this self-righteous display, this self-congratulating performance that we are so impressed with. If you and I right now this second could somehow be transported to the very throne of God where the holy angels attend him, where the saints worship him, let me tell you, there'd be no bragging on self anymore. We would fall down with glorious, adoring wonder, and we would say, worthy are you, O God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Thank you for loving a wretch like me. Thank you for your mercy upon me that you didn't cast me off, but you drew me in. Thank you that Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. It would be no self-righteous Pharisee speech. It would be true worship. It'd be a praising God for mercy and an adoring wonder at his grace to sinners. It would be true prayer, true worship, true salvation, true piety, true righteousness. So we'll stop right there and we'll pick it up next time. Got a little bit more to go yet. We're not done, but hold that thought. Stand with me for prayer. May we, our Father, be a people that is quick to own up to what the Scripture says about us in our native state, our natural state, we are unrighteous and may we not pretend to be self-righteous. May our hearts glory in Christ, in the cross, in the resurrection, in the high priestly ministry of Christ. May this be our joy, our boast. If we get a chance to share a testimony or to share a witness with our neighbors this week, may it be quick to lift up the praises of the only one who is worthy, O Lord, and that is you. You are good, and there is none good but one, and that is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are good. You are good. Your word is good, even if it convicts us and lays us bare. It's good. It's a good word. Because that pain that it will cause on the front end will lead to healing on the, on the back end. It will lead to healing. It will lead to true healing. 
Your word pierces us and then it heals us. It lays us bare and then restores us fully. Lord, I pray that you'll give us gospel attitudes, gospel priorities as we interact with one another. And even as we go our way and and, and in our, our own private world, when we have just our thoughts to ourselves, may our minds be trained to not be the Pharisee and be impressed with ourselves, but to be satisfied and full of the joy of Christ, the dear Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us, who can save self-righteous Pharisees, but they've got to come down. They've got to come down. They've got to repent of trusting in themselves that they are righteous. Who can reach way down and save tax collectors that are on the very bottom already. And it is you, O Lord, that helps us to see what we really are. And I pray for these dear ones in this room, those that have heard by live stream, those that will hear down the road by Recording that somehow you, by your spirit, will draw me into yourself. And may we go home like the tax collector, knowing the joy of justification because we have humbled ourselves and you have lifted us up with a true lifting, a true joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.